And uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 1. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to make your way over there to Luke chapter 1. Um, before we begin, I need to say one thing. It's a pretty important announcement. Um, it's in honor of uh, the Baylor Bears winning the, uh, was it, the Big 12 championship game yesterday, right? So, sick them Bears. And uh, so, that's, that was a pretty important day. I got my brother over here wearing Baylor green. I'm proud of you, Silas. And Rose, and let's see, Tyler, you're a Baylor Bear, and you're wearing blue. What's up with that, man? You didn't think they're going to win or what? Um, <clears throat> anyway, so, well, it's good to see you this morning. <clears throat> and looking forward to our time to be able to study uh, God's word today. <clears throat> Advent and angels, the promise of Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the promised prophet. How many of you here are Star Wars fans? You, you like watching the Star Wars movies? Okay, so a little bit more on this side than that side. Um, I'll be honest with you. I just couldn't get into the series. I, I saw, you know, Star Wars, and then I watched Empire Strikes Back, and then I, I got lost in Return of the Jedi. And then after that, it was like what the prequel or sequel or whatever it was. I don't know. It was just like movie after movie started coming out. It didn't make any sense to me, and so I kind of got lost in it and uh, couldn't keep up. And so I lost interest in the trilogies of George Lucas. And when it comes to the most important story ever told, we often begin with the birth of Jesus, the nativity, the Christmas story. And yet like the trilogies of George Lucas, there is a story that goes before the story that we oftentimes skip. It's that story that I want to consider this morning. And too often we approach the story of the announcement and then the eventual birth of John the Baptist like the preface of a book. It's something that we skip over entirely or if we do read the preface, we hurry through it because we really want to get to what the book is about. We view it as non-essential. And so this morning as we consider the birth of Christ, I want us to linger over the story before the story. Last Sunday, Pastor Drew opened our series on the Advent and Angels in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And there Isaiah the prophet prophesied in verse 2 that the people walking in darkness had seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light had dawned. The night before the sunrise of Jesus' birth had been dark and long. According to the scriptures, the people of Israel, they had been living in darkness and in the shadow of death. They were like a caravan that had been lost in the wilderness, wandering and fearing for their, for their lives. The faithful remnant, they believed in and they looked forward to the messianic sunrise that the prophet Malachi had foretold some 400 years beforehand. And yet, despite of 400 years of silence from heaven, darkness on this earth, there were a people who were still looking and waiting for that sunrise. And this is where Luke begins his gospel. The gospel of Luke begins with the start, with, with the birth and, and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. 
We're not going to read through all of the verses regarding John the Baptist, but we'll spend a considerable amount of time looking at his birth today. But if you wanted to mark the scenes, if you are reading Luke chapter 1 and you wanted to mark the scenes of John's life, just to kind of give you a framework so you can understand where the writer is taking us, you could use this outline in Luke chapter 1. You have the announcement of his birth by the angel Gabriel in verses 5 through 25, and we're going to read that passage here in a moment. In verses 56 through 67, you have the actual birth of John the Baptist and his being named. Beginning in verse 67 down to verse 79, you have this prophetic song of praise by Zechariah regarding John's and regarding the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. And then verse 80, you get a one-verse summary that just summarizes John's life and his preparation for ministry in the wilderness. And so beginning in verse 5, let's read God's word, and then we'll just walk through this passage. And I really want to end this morning looking at those three verses there of Zechariah's prophecy at the end of the message. Let's begin with verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. How would you like the Bible to say that about you? You're very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and You are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. He was playing it safe a little bit. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. Isn't that great? And I have have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. And Elizabeth probably said amen. 
She won every argument for nine months. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them. But he remained unable to speak. And when his service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. The Lord had done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Let's consider what the word of God has to say concerning the birth and coming of John the Baptist and why it's important for us to ponder and consider this one who would come before the Messiah. <coughs> Luke locates the birth of John the Baptist at the time of Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea. <coughs> we see that in verse 5. This was Herod the Great, Herod the First. Herod was appointed king over Judea in the year 37 B.C., and he ruled as king until right after Christ's birth in 4 B.C. He was, this is the king who is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2, who would put to death all the babies in Bethlehem when the wise men had come from the east looking for the king of the Jews. He was an effective and efficient king. He was a military strategist. He uh, drove out the Parthians, the Iranians. It seems like all the world has always been focused on Israel. Herod drove out the Iranians uh, out of uh, Palestine and kept Palestine under Roman control. He was an effective builder. Even today, if you go to the promised land, to Israel, uh, you see the remnants of Herod's construction. You go to the, uh, the port city of Caesarea, and the first thing you see is the, the great racetrack there that um, Herod had built, the great amphitheater there in Caesarea. He had rebuilt Samaria. His temple was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, in, in Jerusalem that he had constructed. He was a politically connected king. He uh, had political connections in Rome. In, in order to garner favor with the Jews, he married into the Hasmonean family, the family of the high priest. And so he was connected politically both in Rome and in Judea. But he was a, a merciless, cruel, and vicious king. He was beyond description. He was jealous. He was completely suspicious of everyone. He was afraid that someone was always trying to take his power. And so he had his brother-in-law, the high priest, drowned. Knowing that that wouldn't sit well with his wife, he killed his wife. And knowing that that wouldn't sit well with his mother-in-law, he killed his mother-in-law. He had two of his four boys murdered. Um, Caesar Augustus jokingly said, it is better to be one of Herod's swine than his, one of his sons. Knowing that no one would weep when he died five days before his death, knowing that his own death was imminent, Herod had the nobles of Jerusalem rounded up and imprisoned, and he gave this order that when he breathed his last, that the nobles of Jerusalem were to be murdered so that there would be weeping at his death. This is the darkness of our world. 
that Christ came. In this time, when Herod was the king, there was a prophet, or a priest rather, named Zechariah. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. Isn't that a great name? Zechariah, the Lord remembers. You remember the story of Moses and Exodus? The people of Israel were suffering terribly under Pharaoh, living under bitter oppression and slavery. And at the birth of Moses, the Bible tells us that the Lord remembered his people. It's not that God forgot Israel, but the Lord remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham that 400 years would pass and he kept his word. The Lord remembers, and Zechariah, this priest, bore that name, the Lord remembers, and the Bible tells us that he belonged to the priestly division of Abijah during the reign of King, uh, King David in Second Chronicle, or First Chronicles chapter 24, David divided the priests. There was, at the time of Christ's birth, there were about 18,000 priests in Israel, divided them into the 24 divisions each division being representative of one of the 24 grandsons of Aaron. And Zechariah belonged to the division of Abijah, and twice a year for one week at a time, each division would serve at the temple in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. She grew up in the home of a priest. She was familiar with the ways of God and the things of God. Her name, Elizabeth, um, uh, I didn't write this in my notes, so let me try to remember. Uh, my God, um, my God is faithful. It speaks, Elizabeth speaks of the oath of God, that God keeps his oath. He is the faithful God. And so Luke tells us in verses 6 and 7, three things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. First of all, Luke tells us that they were righteous they were righteous in the sight of God during both the earthly ministry of Jesus and during the ministry of John the Baptist. Both Jesus and John the Baptist would denounce the religious establishment of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the priests, for they were self-righteous. They were hypocrites they, in the feigning righteousness in the eyes of people. But here was this, this sincere couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous in the eyes of God, how were they righteous? Why were they righteous? In the steps of Abraham, they were righteous. They had been declared righteous and made righteous by God through faith in him. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not only were the, does the Bible tell us that they were righteous, but they were blameless. They, this doesn't mean that they were sinless or perfect, but it means that their lives corresponded to the commands of God. It says that they walked blamelessly. They lived according to the word and to the will of God. They followed the Lord with their whole hearts. And verse seven tells us that they were childless. Oh, what a painful stigma this must have been for this couple. Not only did they suffer from infertility and the bitterness of barrenness, but they walked and they carried the stigma, the, 
the scorn, the condemnation, the belief of many people that for some reason they were under the curse of God, that, that God had withheld children for them because there was some sin in their life. And for year after year, decade after decade, they had prayed for a child and nothing came and they lived with that. Such a, 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 a stigma it was that in verse 25, when Elizabeth learns that she's pregnant, what does she do? She exults and she said, God has shown favor and he has taken away my disgrace. She had lived with that for, for decades and yet Zechariah and Elizabeth are not bitter. Oh, they could have been. Well, God, if you're not going to give us a child, why should we trust you? Why should we follow you? We have prayed and we have prayed, and you have done nothing, and we're not going to follow you. And they could have gone through the motions, but they didn't do that. Zechariah and Elizabeth remained faithful. And in verse 8, when we read in the text here, that when Zechariah's division was called for service, Zechariah was found in his place. He was in the temple. He was serving the Lord faithfully. And if you go back into the temple area, there were the four areas of the temple and just kind of, just setting the historical context so we can just understand what's going on. There was the outer court where the Gentiles and the women would gather for worship. And inside the outer court, you had the inner court. And this is where all the men would gather for worship. And inside the inner court was the holy place. And this is where the priest would go. He would ascend up into the stairs and go into the holy place. And there would be the altar for sacrifice, the altar for incense, and the lampstand that would be lit. And inside the holy place was the holy of holies. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And there, only there, could the high priest go and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the faithful high priest who gave his sacrifice once and all, and it was done. There's no other need for another sacrifice because Jesus is the final high priest. And the Bible tells us in verse uh, 10, I believe it is, verse 9, that um, Zechariah was chosen by Lot. On your service, on your week of service, there would be a lot taken. The offering would be made in the morning and the evening. And a priest, would, their, their names would be drawn by Lot, and they would be chosen to go into the holy place and to make the sacrifice and to offer the incense. It was so that if your name was drawn once, you were taken out. You couldn't serve twice. You could only serve once. And it was during this time, many priests would never serve in the holy place. It was during this time, during the time of Herod, that Zechariah, in his place of service, his name was drawn. And so, I mean, this was the greatest day of his life as a priest. He would go into the holy place. He would make sacrifice for sin. He would offer incense and make prayers for the nations, for the people. And so he's there, and he's doing that in verse 10. It was time for the prayers to be given. And Zechariah walked into the holy place, and he made sacrifice, and he took coals from the altar, and he brought him over to the altar of incense using the appointed censers. And he would take the incense and he would pour the incense over the coals. And as the incense was burning on the coals, it would, the aroma would waft up into the air as a, symbolic, as a symbol of the prayers of God's people. And as he's doing this, Zechariah would pray the priestly prayer. He would pray for the peace of Israel. He would pray for the blessing of God's people. He would pray for the coming Messiah. 
And suddenly verse 10 tells us, verse 11 tells us that there during this time of sacrifice at the altar, an angel of the Lord stood before him at the side of the altar. Verse 12 is kind of like one of those understatement stated verses of the Bible, right? He was startled and gripped with fear. That's how the NIV translates it. He was terrified and he was distressed. I mean, in Zechariah's mind, he was dying that day. I mean, his, this would be his last day. There was an angel, somebody. We don't know what the angel, the Bible doesn't tell us. Was he glowing white? We don't know. Was he like a, a burning figure like he was for Samson's parents? We don't know. Did he take on the human form like uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 18? We don't know. But there was an angel there. And there shouldn't have been anybody else there except Zechariah, but there was an angel of the Lord there. And the angel spoke these words to him, and he says, listen, you, your prayers have been heard. You say, what prayers? Well, maybe the prayers uh, for a son. Maybe your prayers, Zechariah, Elizabeth, your prayers have been heard. More likely, your prayers for the nation have been heard. The peace, the blessing, the Messiah have been heard. And verse, um, let's just read verses 13 down to uh, verse 17 again. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. You're to call him John. He will, he will be a joy and a delight to you. Oh, you can imagine that, Right? He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. You can tell he was a Baptist. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many, people of the, uh, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make people ready for the Lord. Oh, just consider what the angel said. He said, listen, you're gonna have a son. Your son is the answer to the prayers that you've been praying. And the angel tells us four things about John the Baptist. We learn something about his character in these verses. The Bible says that, that John the Baptist would be great in the eyes of God. In fact, Jesus said this very thing about John the Baptist, Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 28, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. No one greater than John. You say, what made John so great? He understood, I believe in part, he understood his purpose and his place. He understood his purpose and his place. When John the Apostle wrote the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, John the Apostle began his gospel describing the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was in the wilderness baptizing people for repentance. He was preparing the way for the Lord. He was calling the nation of Israel to return to the Lord. Some Bible scholars estimate that 300,000 people had come out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. 
That, that's a, a remarkable ministry. And people are, are confessing their sin, and, and John's message is, 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 you know, one of repentance, that bring fruits of repentance. And yet, when Jesus came to be baptized, what did John say? Behold, here, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John understood and he knew that he wasn't the Messiah, nor was he the Savior. Jesus was and is. And later on in John chapter 3, when his disciples came to him, they said, Hey, John, do you remember the guy that you baptized in the river out in the wilderness? Everyone is going to him, and he's baptizing, and he's preaching. And what did John say? He must increase. I must decrease. Not about me, it's about him. And so John would be great in the eyes of God. And not only would John, we learn something about his character, but we see something that, that his life would be consecrated. He would be devoted to God. Uh, he says that, the, the angel says that he would be a Nazarite from birth. No alcohol would um, <clears throat> touch his lips. He wouldn't touch anything dead. A Nazarite vow had a, a third component. No razor would touch his hair. There are three people in the scriptures that were Nazarites from birth. Uh, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. His inner life, his outer life, would be a life that would be devoted to God and his, and his life would bear a powerful witness to the world of one who would be devoted to God. We learn something of his capability. The angel says that he would be filled with the spirit from, his, from the birth, from, his, from the mother's womb. And finally, we learn something about his commission in life. His life, his ministry, his message would be that of turning people back to the Lord. This is why God sent John the Baptist, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He would turn the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness to make ready a people for the Lord. <clears throat> How necessary this is even today. For when we deal with the issues of sin in our lives, what happens? That when our lives are regenerated, when our hearts are regenerated, our lives are reprioritized and our families become redeemed. Such is the effect, the transforming effect of the gospel in the world even today. And although this Angels spoke to this faithful priest. This faithful priest responded in profound disbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am old. My wife is old. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. Like us sometimes, Zechariah was living in the backwash of his own limitations and he couldn't foresee the marvels that God wanted for him if he only believed. Hmm. We look at our circumstances and we think, well, that's an impossibility. With us it is. And we're gonna see next week, Lord willing, in the angel's announcement to Mary that what's impossible with man is possible with God. 
But Zechariah, he couldn't see it. He couldn't believe it. I'm old. She's old. We're old. How is this going to be? And the angel said, well, here's the sign. You'll be mute. Many commentators think that he was deaf. Deaf and mute. He lived in silence and he uh, was unable to speak. He was silent. His mouth was silent. And the angel said in verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. <clears throat> the story of Christ coming into this earth is, is a reminder that God has invaded this earth that God has come into this world. He has come to take back this world. I stand in the presence of God and now I stand before you and I bring you this good news. And because you're unable to and unwilling to believe, you will be silent. In verse 21, people are wondering what's taking Zechariah so long. They're wondering why he stayed in the temple and when he came out, he's unable to speak. When his time for service was completed, he returned home. Verse 24, Elizabeth conceived Verse 25, Elizabeth's exaltation, the Lord has taken away my disgrace and he has shown favor. The heritage of John the Baptist. And we continue on with this story, beginning in verse 57, we see that when time came, Elizabeth gave birth on the eighth day of John the Baptist, the family and friends, they gathered. For his circumcision and for his naming. And everyone who was there wanted to name him Zechariah. And Elizabeth said, no. This child's name is John. They said, we don't have a John in your family. John. The Lord is gracious. Another great name, Right? God remembers, the Lord is faithful, the Lord, God is gracious. And, and, and they objected, the people objected. Elizabeth said, no, it's John. And they motioned to, to Zechariah and they said, what are you going to name the child? And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote out his name is John. And the Bible says, when he wrote it out and said his name is John, his tongue was loosed and he could speak. And... Um, what does verse 66 says? says everyone, who heard this one, everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. They wanted to know. They were taking note. They were sitting up. They are saying, what's going on with this child? What's going to happen with this child? And what does Zechariah do? Beginning in verse 67, end of the chapter, he has this prophetic psalm of praise. Traditionally, verse 67 and following are, is known as the Benedictus. It's a Latin word for praise, praise to God. It's, it comes from the first two words of verse 68, praise be, praise be to the Lord. In verses 68 to 71, Zechariah praises God for the birth of Christ because Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that Jesus Christ would be the horn of salvation. Verses 72 to 75 Zechariah's, Zechariah praised God for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and that he would enable his people to serve the Lord without fear 
in holiness and righteousness all the days of their lives. And beginning in verse 76, Zechariah praised God for John the Baptist. And I want to end this morning by looking at this prophetic statement. A few minutes. Give me about 10 minutes and we'll be done. All right, you guys good? Verse 76. And you, my child, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Verse 80. The summary statement of John's life. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. What is Zechariah saying here about John the Baptist? He says that you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. Not, you will not be the prophet, you, you'll, rather you'll not be the son of the priest or you'll not be the son, you won't be called the son of the old man or you won't be called the miracle baby, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, we're just, we're, we're picking and choosing the verses here, but if you, we were to read the whole chapter, Luke chapter 1, we would find here that this is the third time that Luke has made reference to the Most High. He's drawing our attention to something. When Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be with child, she said that this child would be called the Son of the Most High. When Mary said, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said, this child will be conceived by the power of the Most High. He would be virgin born. John the Baptist is not the son of the Most High. He would be the prophet of the Most High. Now, the, the Most High is a reference to who God is. It, it's just God, uh, God most high. It is God uh, above all gods. There, there is no other God. That is God alone is God. Uh, there's none beside him. There's none that is his equal. He alone is God. And this is what we need to remember of what Christmas is about. That it's the coming of God most high into our world. John came to declare that. His mission, his purpose would be twofold. He would first of all prepare the way for the Messiah. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, Zechariah said that you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That idea of preparing the way was used when a king would, would go into a land, into a, uh, his way would be prepared. Uh, he would send envoys that would go before him and, and the rubble would be removed. The crooked road would be made straight. The road that would have valleys and hills would be leveled so that the path would be uh, uh, level. 
And John the Baptist came to do this, to make the way for, ready for the Lord. And I want us to just think about that for a few moments this morning. What rubble needs to be removed from your life? What valleys need to be filled in and what hills need to be knocked down where there's a gap between what you believe and how you behave? What has been ruined in your life by sin or neglect and that today is in need of repair? You see, the story before the story, John the Baptist prepares us to receive the message of Christ coming and the gift of Christmas. Are you today crushed by your past failures and mistakes? Are you living in the haunting shadow of regret? Are you holding on to the hurts and the resentments and the wrong beliefs about God and others and yourself? Like a farmer whose mission, whose purpose was to till up the fallow ground, John the Baptist came to break up the hardened ground of our hearts and our lives. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah says in verse 77 that not only would he come to prepare the way, but he came to proclaim, to proclaim the, um, the message of salvation. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. To lead his people into the experience, the realization, the reality of salvation. Not something that they would just know in their heads. Something that they would be able to recite and repeat. Something that they experienced deep within their soul. John the Baptist came proclaiming that message of salvation. And notice what the Zechariah says that about this message of salvation that his son would proclaim. Notice, first of all, the means of this salvation. Notice what he says in verse 77. Through the forgiveness of sins. Although salvation affects every domain of life, we want God to fix our lives, don't we? We want God to, to fix what's wrong and to give us a problem-free existence and Salvation does affect, affect every area of our life, but at the fundamental core of salvation, the issue of salvation is the need for forgiveness. What is wrong with us, what is wrong with our world has to do with our sin, and there is the need for forgiveness. Salvation is not merely a matter of political freedom or economic prosperity or racial reconciliation or national identity. Salvation is a matter of reconciliation between us and God through the work of the one who would come, uh, Jesus Christ. John's message, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was preparing the world to hear, receive that message. Years ago, I read a Christmas card that I can't remember all the descriptions on it, but it says it went something like this. If our greatest need um, 
was for knowledge, he would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need was um, freedom, he would have sent us a politician, which I don't know how that works, but... If our greatest need was technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was health, he would have sent us uh, a physician. But because our greatest need is forgiveness, he sent us a savior. Prepare the way for the Messiah. Proclaim the message of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Notice the motive. Don't miss it. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Don't miss that. The tender mercy of God. Not the stingy mercy of God. Not the begrudging mercy of our God. Not the obligated mercy of our God. But the Tender mercy of our God. Tender, with that word is translated other places in the New Testament. Compassionate, the compassionate mercy of God. It's that which wells up deep within the core of who God is. The mercy of God that overflows and spills towards you. In this world of darkness where people like Herod dominate and People like Zachariah and Elizabeth who are faithful but barren. The mercy of God is coming and moving towards you. Oh, how we have wronged us with God. How many of us we've thought so poorly of God. How many of us here today would just, if we're going to be honest, that we need to confess how we have viewed God. We thought wrongly of him. We thought poorly of him. We've not thought about him at all. And John would come and would proclaim the, the knowledge of salvation and would prepare the way for the Messiah because of the tender mercy of God. Listen to what the scripture says about the mercy of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. This is just a scattering. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. To Moses, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans chapter 12, I therefore urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing to him. This is your true and proper worship. David, at the end of his life, sinned against God by taking a census that he was not to take. And the prophet Gad came to him with the judgment, and he had three options. And David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. That's something to think about, isn't it? Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the Lord and God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The means of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. The motive for salvation is the tender mercy of God, the manifestation of God's salvation. Verses, end of verse 78, 79. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. So rich. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. Our salvation is not going to be found among us or through us or in us. It's outside of us. And what would this rising sun do? Verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. To those living in darkness, to those who are wandering, grasping, lost, hoping, there is light. Those who are living in the shadow of death, so many times we think, well, we've gone from living to dying when in reality what we're doing is we're living in the land of the dying. Life. Light and life to guide our feet into the path of peace. Shalom, the shalom of God. Zechariah saw and he said, child, you will proclaim this salvation that's going to come from heaven that's going to bring light and life and peace into a dark, dying, confused, chaotic world. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, Christmas is the most realistic way of looking at life. Our culture wants to make it everything but this. We want to have nostalgia. Let's just have goodwill. Let's, bring, you know, let's, let's give gifts to folks. Let's, let's help the poor. And, and, we, and we needed to do that this morning. I was just reading in Deuteronomy chapter 14 about God's concern for the poor in the land. But Christmas doesn't say, hey, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make this world a better place. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is not, hey, listen, we can build back better together. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christianity and the message of Christmas is this. Things really are this bad. And we can't heal ourselves or save ourselves. Nevertheless, there's hope. Because there is a dawn, a sunrise coming from heaven that will shine light to those who are living in darkness. Bring life to those who are living in the shadow of death. Bring peace. 
to a world filled with chaos and conflict and strife, corruption. This is the message that John proclaimed. This is the message we must receive and believe. And this is the message that we must carry to the world today.